Hi, welcome to Tales from the Pit. This is your content warning. Today's episode is fairly heavy. We're going to be talking about suicidal thoughts, impulses, and attempts. Even though our goal is obviously to help, especially people who are struggling with these feelings, we urge you not to listen if you feel that this episode might trigger you or if you're currently in crisis. Instead, reach out to someone you can confide in and let them know what you're going through. Another content note, rather than a comedic monologue, I'll be opening this episode with a short story, which is fairly lengthy, so if you're not interested in hearing that story, you can skip right to the interview at about 25 minutes in. With all that out of the way, one or two caveats about the story you're going to hear. It does refer to a turned-off screen as a black mirror, and I'll have you know that I wrote this story when I was 19 years old in 2005, far predating the show Black Mirror, the same year, in fact, that I wrote a suicide note of my own, which I never acted on or showed anyone. I'm not sure what that means, but I guess I don't have to be. This episode is dedicated to the memory of Hans Clemens. Matthew scooped two lumps of cold, orange deliciousness into a pair of ceramic bowls on the kitchen counter. The sherbet curled in his metal scoop, bowing before the distorted reflection of his face on the surface. It was a color not found in nature, but nonetheless inviting. He plopped the ice cream into small, yolk-yellow bowls Bahati and Asha had given Jane and he as a wedding present. They were valuable. Real ceramic was hard to come by and Matthew and Jane only used them on special occasions. Ice cream for breakfast? Jane stood on the threshold between the kitchen and bedroom, wearing a black silk robe that made her an ink stain on the paper whiteness of their apartment. It's the end of the universe, he said, pushing her bowl to the edge of the faux granite counter. I don't think anyone will mind. Jane stepped down into their sunken living area, felt the grass floor embrace her. The light in the apartment was pale yellow, a simulated dawn that flowed out of a million microscopic filaments embedded in the walls. The stool in front of the kitchen counter sank ever so slightly into the grass as Jane sat. She laid a hand on her swollen belly. It felt silk and black. I smell eggs, she said, and all the thoughts of life and death she had ever thought before blossomed in her head and stomped off down a dark jungle path. Matthew made an affirmative noise around the ice-cream-filled spoon in his mouth, he took the spoon out. Delicious, he said. Then, yep, eggs and ice cream. He looked at Jane and smiled without his eyes, so that she could tell he was only smiling to get her to smile. So she smiled. While they ate, they finished the chess game they had left saved the night before. Little animated pieces moved about at their commands, hovering above the countertop. Your move, Jane would say, taking a bite of her omelet and dipping it in sherbet. You're losing it, she would say, and Matthew would believe her. He'd get worked up and make stupid mistakes, feeling embarrassed and jealous about the whole thing. Jane won, and Matthew insisted on another game. She won that, too. Matthew switched the chessboard off. Jane's stomach was fuller than ever. 
The baby now shared residence with two helpings of orange sherbet and a decent, though slightly burnt, machaca omelet. She felt it kick a little in protest or thanks. She and Matthew sat in front of the vid screen in the living room. It was turned off, a black mirror. The light in the room was phasing into a clear daylight, and the temperature raised accordingly, melting the carton of ice cream that Matthew hadn't bothered to put back in the freezer. He had his arm around his wife and ran his long fingers through her wavy hair. I love you, he said, and she said that she loved him too. Do you want to open the windows, he asked. He didn't want to, but felt as if he should. It was the thing to see after all. I don't know, she said. I kind of like the sun. Matthew kissed her on the cheek, relieved. Do you want me to turn on the vid screen? Why, think there'll be anything on? Don't know. Probably not, she said. Then she laughed, for no reason other than that she wanted to hear a laugh today, and she worried she may not get another opportunity. Matthew forced a chuckle, too, pressed the contact that turned the vid screen on. That's not why I laughed, said Jane. You didn't have to do it. It's all right, he said. I wanted to. I'm kind of freaking out. Don't freak out, said Jane. She draped herself over him and laid her head on his shoulder, as if to smother the flame of his rising panic. There was nothing on. Every channel was a blank feed, broadcasting only their radioactive green DNS numbers, a foot high on a black background. Matthew switched it off again. Jane stood and flexed her lower back. She had dull pains, as she always had in the morning. The baby had caused innumerable inconveniences like that. Morning sickness, headaches, incontinence, the inability to bend at the waist. All that, thought Jane, and she would never get to meet the little person inside of her. All she would ever know of her child was what she knew of it now, that it was alive and hungry, that it wanted to be. That was enough, she decided, having no other choice. Matthew had donned his work outfit that day, a pair of khaki slacks, a blindingly white button-up shirt, and bare feet. He habitually wore almost the same outfit every day, even though he now worked from a home office. It was the one ritual he'd allowed himself to cling to and keep intact, despite the coming change. Smiling, with his eyes this time, Matthew wrapped his long arms around Jane and ran fists up and down the small of her back, rubbing out the kinks wherever he found them. Where does it hurt, he said, and Jane could very distinctly smell the morning's breakfast on his breath and his familiar scent beneath. Everywhere. Oh, he cooed, I'm sorry. He hugged her, and she let herself fall against his chest. Matthew was a systems administrator for the station. He took a great deal of pleasure in his job, which consisted of blocking, routing, and rerouting mighty data streams as they rocketed back and forth through the mainframe. At his workstation, Matthew enjoyed a music collection that spanned thousands of years and an equal number of artists, both human and AI. Every inch of the embedded circuitry which controlled the lighting, temperature, humidity, and atmospheric composition of Matthew and Jane's apartment had been modded, tweaked, and perfected by him over the course of three years. He was a handyman and a homebody. Matthew saw his life as being made up of an infinite number of equally important details, all snugly fit together to form a whole picture, like pieces in a jigsaw puzzle. In his puzzle, there were only two pieces that were bigger than the others. One was in his arms, and the other was waiting patiently outside the window. None of this mattered anymore, objectively speaking. Let's open the windows, he said, even though he didn't want them opened. Jane moaned into his chest. She knew what he was doing, getting worked up unnecessarily. Or was it necessary? 
She lifted her head up and said, Don't, the sun is fine. Matthew hugged Jane tighter. A wave of utter despair washed over him then, an abyss rushing upwards. For a moment, he didn't know who or what he was. He was simply panic, incoherent resentment at the unfairness of... something. Waves of grief and rage subsumed in a cold numbness that froze inside his skull and threatened to crack it like the spring thaw. Then it passed. The feeling had lasted about six seconds. I want to open them, he said. His voice was far away. I think it's good to. Jane didn't say anything this time, so Matthew crossed the room to the eggshell wall that comprised one side of their living space. The wall glowed faintly yellow from where fiber optic filaments had been installed, a billion lights at the end of a billion tunnels, enough false hope for everyone. Jane turned away as Matthew passed his hand over an inset panel. She walked to the kitchen counter and sat down on her stool while the wall slid up into the ceiling with startling grace and speed. She tipped the ice cream carton towards her. It was almost gone, and what was left had turned into orange soup. She lifted Matthew's spoon from the bowl he hadn't cleared and ate some of the soup, feeling a comfortable queasiness coming on. Matthew stared out the window, which was a vast and perfectly translucent sheet of plastic that took up the whole side of their connected living room and kitchen. Behind it, there was the limitless black of space. No stars twinkled or shone, no nebulae or satellites ruined the pureness of the void there. There was nothing on but the empty feed of a dead universe, lacking even the green DNS numbers in the corner. The only thing to break the visual monotony were the faintest outlines of Matthew's own dim silhouette in the bowed surface, a black mirror. Matthew imagined changing the channel in his head, but the same thing was on every station. Even universes must wind down, and this one's stars had left the stage long ago. The embers of their ambient heat bowing to entropy's demands until finally, even in the cocoon of a space station, power must fail and the cosmic pocket watch mark its final second and be still. Don't get worked up, she said. I'm just looking, he said. It looks how it's always looked. But it's changed. Even if we can't see it in the darkness, we know it's coming. He couldn't help it. His hands started shaking. He stared ever deeper into the dark, looking for something, anything, a reason to believe in one more day. He jumped when the windows suddenly closed again. Jane, he said. What, she said. Were you watching that? She let her hand fall away from the panel in the counter. Come sit with me. He did, and he felt better, but not much. They held hands and didn't talk for a long time. I feel it, Jane finally said. Matthew didn't say anything, but he felt it too. The oxygen was going away. According to the last estimates Matthew had seen before the newswire went dead, that meant the station was within six hours of total power loss. The baby's kicking, Jane said. I feel it. Her smile was like a curved violin bow on her pale face, and freckles dotted it. She held Matthew's hand to her belly. He felt it silk and black for a few moments, still as death. Then a kick a little struggling sign of life within the darkness. He smiled, too, into the deep well of her eyes. Any ice cream left, he asked, knowing the answer. I ate it all. Uh-huh. Another grin. I feel kind of sick, to be honest. Serves you right. Matthew got up and started to clear dishes. Are those the bowls Asha and Bahati gave us? Jane asked. Yes, 
Matthew set them in the sink. The sound of the stone hitting the metal basin reminded him that these were real ceramic. He was so used to hearing the nothing sound of hard-molded plasticware when he set dishes in the sink. This moment represented a singular sensation, he realized, the creation of a novel sound he found enjoyable. It was a little thing, but he would not have had the experience if he had accepted Bahati's invitation from a week before. And even after the universe ended, that satisfying clink will have occurred, and he and Jane will have been there to experience the stimuli. That was something. Bahati had been a friend of Matthew's, another sysadmin who worked in the same office. He and his wife Asha had been over for dinner many times, and they often attended station functions together. Bahati was a large, scowling man with chiseled features and a honeyed voice. Asha, a slip of a girl, with coarse black hair and painted black fingernails that she had a habit of tapping on countertops. Asha was sterile. Sterility was an exceedingly rare condition on the station, but a one-in-a-million genetic defect coupled with a one-in-a-billion screening malfunction on the part of onboard maternity computers had allowed Asha to come into the world without the puzzle pieces required to make offspring. She and Bahati never adopted and never talked too much about it. Matthew recalled the vid message he'd received from Bahati when the net was still fully up and he was still working his shifts. The subject line had been simply, Invitation. Matthew and Jane had fought that day, Matthew had implied that they might consider aborting the baby to make her final weeks less physically unpleasant, and Jane had thrown a clock at him. So, he was in a particularly foul mood when, in an act of aimless petulance, he deleted Bahati's message without reading it. The next day, the last day the newswire was up, a placid newsperson continued reporting mildly on the impending end of all things, as if they too would not die gasping for air along with everyone on board. But that day they announced something new, a newly approved activity aboard the station, and gave information on how interested parties could organize their own and advice on the execution of the event. These events were mass suicides. They also encouraged viewers to invite close friends to make tandem appointments to make the experience less awkward. They were like dinner parties, hundreds and even thousands of people choosing the hours of their deaths taking their destinies into their own hands. In all, it was supposed to have been a rather pleasant experience. People drank, ate, talked, wept, said final goodbyes. After everything was done, the breather was passed around and everyone fell asleep, never to awaken to the cold world or the dark sky or missing puzzle pieces ever again. When Jane and Matthew learned that Bahati and Asha had died, had passed around the breather and died along with a thousand others, had invited them and wanted them to die beside them. Matthew spent hours trying to recover Bahati's message, but the system was far too fractured for that. Matthew often wondered how they were disposing of all the bodies. Maybe they got recycled. Maybe they were burned in the station's incinerators, thereby made martyrs who helped prolong the lifespans of the remaining survivors, if only by days or hours or minutes. Matthew liked to think of them like that nobly sacrificing themselves, rather than cowards opting for an easy solution. After all, if they were cowards for dying, what was he? A coward for living? Maybe they got shot into space. Maybe someone simply shut the door behind them when the party was over and that was that. Who would know? What are you thinking about? Jane said. 
Matthew realized he'd been standing at the sink for far too long. He shut the water off and watched the last drop spiral down the drain. Then he said that he wasn't thinking about anything, really, and turned back towards Jane. He had to catch himself on the edge of the countertop as the floor suddenly tilted away from him. Careful, Jane got up to help him, but he waved her off. Don't, he said. I'm fine. Sit down. Just a little lightheaded. Jane walked over to Matthew and took his hand in hers. Come on, she said, leading him to the living room. They sat together in the grass, a black and a white chess piece on a field of green. They passed the time talking, keeping one another updated on the progress of their faintness. Occasionally, Jane would put Matthew's hand on her stomach so he could feel the baby kicking. Matthew's breathing became shorter after a few hours. He breathed like a bulldozer digs, taking in big, shallow gulps of air. Jane hadn't let go of his hand, but he could see that her eyes were closing. She was drowsy. It was that vision of his wife slowly falling asleep that finally set Matthew off. Somewhere in his brain, the purely biological part of him finally understood what was about to happen. He was going to die. Jane was going to die. He knew it like an animal knows it, and he had no choice but to give in to the falling feeling, the adrenaline that courses and offers nothing but sure knowledge that you are nothing, come to nothing. It pounded in his veins. Without anything to fight and with nowhere to run, he just held Jane tighter. Every inch of his body, every muscle and nerve told him that the inevitable wasn't inevitable, and he ignored it. Epinephrine sank into his gut and grew dull and sick. He held his breath until the urge to vomit passed, then forced himself to take one long, slow breath. To Matthew's surprise, tears ran down his face when he let the air out. Shh, he heard Jane say. She was stroking the back of his head, and her head was against his chest now. He wondered how long he had been gasping. How are you so much better at this, he said. It was an attempt at a joke, but his voice was broken by gasps and sobs. He wailed, shook, held her like a rosary, praying to his goddess of chess and silk and love and ice cream and babies and life to take this despair away. Shh, sweetheart. Her voice was a foghorn sounding across an endless midnight ocean. He tried to open his eyes and find her, but black shapes like ink dropped in water intruded into his view. I can't see you, he said frantically. I can't see you. It's okay, she said. You've seen me enough. I'm right here. Her words were whispers. He felt her lace her fingers together at the back of his neck. He felt her belly touching his. I've got you. I'm scared, too. Let's be strong. Help me be strong. There was no kicking from within her anymore. The life growing inside Jane had gone still. The baby stopped, he whispered. He felt the wet heat of her tears and soft cheek on his shoulder, he ripped at his shirt so that he could hold her skin to skin. She pressed forward and they burrowed into one another, blanketing themselves in warmth and familiar flesh. As they smelled one another's smells, fat bundles of neurons shot lightning through their brains and reminded them, this is your other, this is your love. I know, she said, tightening her grip around him. She stopped a while ago. She, Matthew whispered. By the time they had known Jane was pregnant, the medical bay had already been decommissioned as an energy-saving measure. They had had many long talks about what sex the baby might have been while lying in their bed amidst the cool blue light of a perfectly simulated twilight. "'It's the end of the universe,' said Jane. "'I don't think anyone will mind if I guess.' 
I miss her already, he said. He cradled Jane as she keened for the death of their child, and despite it all, he found his strength rising a bit in the moment of her weakness. An emergency reserve only her pain could have roused in him. He did what he thought he could not do, and was strong for her. He comforted his goddess, who was so much braver than he. He closed his eyes, pictured every exquisite detail of her face as clearly as he could. I can hear your heart, said Jane. She waited for her moans to stop before she went on. It was worth it anyway, she said. That's what Matthew thought, she said. His hearing was becoming less trustworthy. A shrill ringing echoed in his ears. I'm not sorry, he thought, she said. So he said, me neither. His breaths had become short and ragged again by the time Jane's grip on his neck loosened, relaxed, and released. She collapsed into him with her full weight, and he let himself fall back onto the grass with her on top. She was dead now. He would be soon. The time in between would be very difficult, but he would have to experience it anyway. Those were the rules. Jane was still warm, and he loved her so much. It seemed terribly unfair of him to be bigger than her, to have lived just a minute longer. He hated himself for it. At that moment, the moment he knew that his wife had become entropy, Matthew felt as if he were made less than weightless, ripped from his body, Skimming across the ceiling of the room, a part of the electrical systems now, he looked down on the two of them locked together, the puzzle on the floor. He watched from above with unclouded vision as Matthew lifted Jane from him and carried her to the living room wall. He saw his own shaking and suffocating body collapse against that wall and run its hand over the embedded panel there. The window opened without a sound. Matthew returned to his body then, pulled air into himself with detached habit, and leaned against the glass. He stared through the ink black of his failing eyes at the silk black beyond the wall. His hand was on her belly. She was still warm, still warm. As no one watched, Matthew spent the last moments of his life scratching, hammering, clawing at that black window. He moaned a violent despair at the bottomless pit. He fought and raged without knowing why. He kicked at the glass again and again, knowing that if he could just break through, could ride out to meet death, complete the puzzle and get a good look at it, capture the final piece without it capturing him. He heard again, loud inside his chest cavity, echoing the words that Jane had said when she died. She'd answered the only question that a living thing in pain and despair who has paid too high a cost, cares to know the answer to. She had said that it was worth it. Matthew chose to believe her in that moment. It was the first true act of faith in his life. So he had hope, or maybe he was delusional, as he kicked and kicked and kicked at the glass. There was no one left to decide which was which, or if there was a difference in the end. With his final breath, he kicked again at the staggering darkness.
but I was too like, embarrassed well, to give it to her. Mm-hmm. So I left it at the front office and I had them page her to the office. And I waited in the hall to see if she would come. And then as soon as I saw her come into the hallway, I ran into the bathroom and hid. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> oh I gave, well, I had the same thing and I gave it to the girl and I lived to regret it. So just so you feel better. All right, I've used that conversation snippet to get levels. Oh yeah, I need to be a little bit closer to this thing. <laughs> oh, okay, then I might adjust levels based on that. I, uh, I made a, an elaborate, in ceramics class, I made an elaborate like dragon death mask. <laughs> Go on. And I gave it to a girl on a first date, and mm. it turned out to be the worst first date ever, which I'll use on rough stuff at some point. Oh yeah, um, I've got a I've got a good one for that. But too. like it involved like racist homeless people harassing her and me like just being like I'm not involved. <laughs> like cowardly. <laughs> um it involved like uh, a play in a 99 seat theater where I had constant diarrhea and I had to like keep excusing myself. Somebody has told me this story. Yeah, it's either okay. you or Abe. I can't remember. It's got to Yeah, well, he I've, knows. Well, I've heard like echoes of the yeah. story, but not like the. Fall. But the worst part that I've never actually told anyone is, I gave her this dragon mask, and then I like at school, I was like, I need that shit back. <laughs> It's I, I'm so I'm so proud of it, and she was like, "You don't know where I live, and you're never getting back." It's really good, and I want it, <laughs> bitch. Oh, that's the best. I can't remember her name. <laughs> it's probably also for the best. That's fine. Okay, let's see. My waveform looks yay big. Uh, I just nudged you, so can you talk a little? Yeah, yeah. I'm <laughs> this is the volume. Oh, you got to go up a little bit. All right. I will be speaking. I can lean into this too. All right. Should we get going? Yeah. Sure. All right. Well, here we are in the pit. Yep. It's very like nicely lit for a pit. It is. It's a nice day in Los Angeles. I'm having a weird. I don't know if it's an inner ear thing, but is your apartment at a slight tilt? Oh God! <laughs> Why did you put that in my head? <laughs> I just moved into a new place, and now I will not unsee that forever. As I felt it, like walking down the hallway, I was like, "Whoa!" Like, really? It might just I can't be me. Tell. It might just be me. I don't know. The, I just moved into this place, and the one thing I'll say is, every single, almost every single drawer and cabinet cannot close. Like that's, that's not helpful. open because that it can't be closed. Oh, <laughs> nor can that or that. But we'll figure it out. Yeah. No, we have uh, a we have a drawer in my apartment that will not open or close. So what's the etiquette? Have you bugged the landlord? Is that worth bugging them? I about? never have been we've been there almost four years now and mm-hmm. have not mentioned it. All <laughs> just, right. Okay. Our blinds in the bedroom have also been broken. I've just not let that just let that slide. Oh man, I have that exact thing. My blinds in the bedroom are bent horribly. Yeah. And I it really bothers me. It doesn't actually cause any functional problems, but it bothers my OCD tremendously. <laughs> well, we have those stupid, it's not Venetian blinds. It's those stupid vertical ones. Wait, I thought vertical ones were Venetian I blinds. I thought Venetian were these. So I, I have the, I thought, good old American standard horizontal metal blinds that you can actually paper cut yourself on. Yes, you can. Those, yeah. those are weaponized uh that don't work well. Well, whatever. You have vertical blinds. Yeah, we have okay. vertical blinds, and like most, most of them are just broken and fallen off. So sure. we just, I just have this towel hanging over it. Yeah, and it yeah. looks very good. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're talking about suicide today. <laughs> 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 
I just want to thank you first. Today just, on Blind Cab. That's right. <laughs> Today on Cash Cab. <laughs> suicide. Uh, that might be the last time we laugh for the rest of this podcast. Oh, I don't know. We'll see. Whatever happens, happens. Yeah. Um, since I've started Tales from the Pit, suicide, suicidal thoughts, and suicidal tendencies is obviously a topic that like screams out to be mm-hmm. uh, covered. Um, and at the same time, it's just so rough to cover. But yeah. Here we go. Here we are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and in the interest of vulnerability, I just want to say I'm willing to go first, <laughs> as it were. Or, or sure. But I mean, I do want you to be the focus of, you know, I have questions for you that I think. Of course. Are yeah, yeah. I, it, um, we, we, you sent the prep questions. It's yeah. been several weeks ago now. That's true. <laughs> so they are not in my head. Full right disclosure, now. <laughs> we have postponed this five or six times. It's I all right. It's, yeah. it, was, it was right. You tried to schedule it right before you moved, which is always. Exactly. I mean, I scheduled a wedding and a, and a move across the country like within a month of each other because I'm a lunatic. Right. Um, so. I've never moved farther from than San Diego to LA, so I can't imagine what that cross country shit is like. <laughs> it was a four day drive. Yeah. But anyway, sorry. No, no, no. I think, uh, so I want to say that the, I think, like, why are we doing this? <laughs> and I think, oh. you know, but I want to explain to the audience. Um, Jason Pargin actually wrote a good piece about this for Cracktway back in the day as well. I think, like, the 10 minute guide to killing yourself. <laughs> I don't remember that one. Well, it was satirical, my yeah. friend. You see, it actually convinced people who were thinking of killing themselves not to kill themselves. <clears throat> and he titled it that so it might rise to the top of the Google ranking so that people who were thinking right. about killing themselves would see Wouldn't it. Wouldn't do it, yeah. Yeah. Um, which is admirable. But I think, w- man, it's interesting how big the gap is between like, I can so easily talk about deep depression and I have wanted to kill myself and mm-hmm. contemplated it seriously. And we're sure. going to get into that. But there is like there's like a gap there. And I think that makes it all more important to talk about, because I think the basic point of this podcast is a gap in your comfort to talk about talking about it or. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's it's weird. Or maybe I don't know, because I'm a big believer in like the stranger theory of shit just affects you. So maybe it's just the circumstances of the day. Does that make sense? I don't know. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, I don't know the stranger thing. Existentialism, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like, like uh, people often think they're grumpy or cranky and they ascribe it to a reason. Like, our relationship must be going poorly if they're fighting with their significant other. Mm-hmm. When it's like, uh, it could turn out that 85% of your mood was based on, you should have eaten two hours earlier. Oh. Your blood sugar was weird. And in The Stranger, a guy famously uh, shoots a dude... And it's deeply explored. He shoots someone for no reason, a stranger on a beach. And it's deeply explored why, like mentally in the book. Mm -hmm. And it comes down to the sun was shining in his eyes. And like that was the tipping point. Like it was uncomfortably hot and it made him irritable or he wouldn't have shot that guy. Hmm. And I think there's truth to that. I think so. Um... And And I think that gets at the topic because... Okay, yes, I can wrap this up and move us along. Um, I don't have anything to do today. <laughs> exactly. No. People uh, contemplating suicide, I do think uh, the main message I'd want to send out is there's so many factors in life, and as Kurt Vonnegut said, it's hard to know what's good news and bad news mm-hmm. for many years usually until retrospect. Yeah, yeah. Um, that it's almost always worth it to wait and see what happens next. Yeah, 
And I believe that 90% of the time that I'm yeah. alive and then 10% I'm having troubles. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you talk for a while if that's all right. Me? <laughs> yeah. Uh, wow, shoot. Um, I, I can recap those questions if that helps spark. Do you need like a, an energy ball? <laughs> Maybe, yeah. To get going. Okay. Well, I'll say I've described one of the key questions that I always ask in this podcast of guests mm-hmm. is how depression feels to you. Cause I'm trying to find out if it's different from person to person. I gotcha. Okay. That's a, that's yeah. a great, that's a great place to start. Mine started pretty, pretty young. Um, probably, man, definitely by 10. Um, because I was definitely, it was like third, fourth grade. Um, and it was a way like I was, it's weird. I decided to be depressed almost because it was like a way to keep my, to, it was, it was a way to like push myself, but at the same time, lower my expectations so that failure wouldn't get to me. Okay. If that makes sense. So like, um, I was, uh, a, a little nerd, a little nerd, a little nerdy kid. Common theme on this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. And also, among all the people we know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, so I would, like my at that point in my life my thing was being smart like that was my identity it's like oh you're the you're the smart one yeah and i don't know that it's something that i wanted it's just something that was sort of pushed on me i guess cuz like by peers or your parents by my parents like Both? my family okay. my family would like notice oh you're good at books and shit academics so, <laughs> yeah. yeah um so you're the smart one so that was like okay well that's going to be who i am um but at the same time, I was like partway through elementary school. I got terrible at being social. Like I wasn't mm. when I was a younger, like a little kid, I was pretty good at being social. And then about third grade, um, I got like crazy overweight and I stayed that way for a long time until like high school. Um, and so it, I became I really self socially self conscious about wow. things. So it like leaned mm-hmm. even harder into the I am the smart guy thing, because that's where I figured my worth was. And then, so far our lives are identical. I noticed that. <laughs> yeah, <weird. laughs> like weirdly identical. Yeah, listening to other podcasts of yours, I'm like, this is very similar yeah. to my journey. Um. So I yeah I just I sort of developed this pessimism. I consciously developed it so that I would. Mm not be disappointed when things didn't go right because I was trying to not have my feelings hurt. And the irony is, of course, is that when you do that to yourself, your feelings are hurt all the time. Okay, because I was actually, <laughs> I had a strong impulse to jump in and ask, mm-hmm. does that work? <laughs> I didn't do that. It, <laughs> I have the thing where I have both sides of the coin of like, I think, limit, boundless, not vanity, but confidence. Like, I think I'm gifted with a lot of skills and I expect a lot from myself uh-huh. and then it totally oscillates like a switch between like and you're not living up to that so fuck you <laughs> and I have no coping mechanism for that and it seems like you use the coping mechanism of lowering your expectations yeah I, and did that work because I should try that I don't know <laughs> okay <laughs> the other th- I never this is Marina has to constantly remind me to do this because mm-hmm. um this whatever use i got out of this has long since out <laughs> outlasted its usefulness right. um so like marina has to re- remind me to actually like enjoy when things go well mm. because this this mentality is so in- ingrained in me that i don't 
Like I, I could never imagine experiencing things the way that you just described it, where it's like this like elevated vanity and like I have so many skills. It's like anytime something goes well for me, I feel like that the imposter thing where it's like, mm. oh, I got lucky and they're going to find out that I'm not really good at this. <laughs> like... I feel that half the time and then intense self-loathing the other half of the time. Yeah. I've chosen like a rockier <laughs> ride. I don't know. <laughs> so anyway, I, yeah, I sort of developed that on purpose and it was mm-hmm. just constantly beating myself down in a way to like push me to do better. Yeah. And then I guess you can maintain that okay as like a little, as a younger kid, but then... I bet it got results for a while. It did, yeah. Or like in terms of performance, great grades. Yeah, I, did, yeah, I was SAT great. Scores, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then um, middle school is when it started to really harm me. I mean, the mm-hmm. harm was beginning, but then that's when it like, like I would just be sad and alone all the time, um, mm. and. Like no social group in middle school? Very small one. God, it's so, I mean, no (laughs) one's unique, but. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Ditto. Yeah. Middle school is a fucking wasteland, man. (laughs) Middle school was rough. Middle Middle school school sucks dick. (laughs) I had a paradoxically really good sixth grade year. Me too. uh, But then seventh seventh and eighth and ninth grade were a goddamn wasteland. Oh, was your middle school three years? Uh, No, it was weird. I moved from Virginia to Kansas. Okay. In uh, for sixth grade, and in the the school I went to in sixth grade, uh, it was still considered elementary school. Gotcha. So okay. I was still in a an an elementary um, school. If you hear a background sound, it's my roommate who's in Japan for two weeks, and by the way, whose one cat has sprayed on my bed repeatedly. Sweet. Uh, the other cat's just fucking around just in the kitchen. So with some boxes sorry. and shit. We're not gonna be able to stop that. Let's right. let's soldier on. Oh, that cat. Clark, you piece of shit. <laughs> the cat's name is Clark? Yeah. After that's, Clark Gable. Oh, that's who awesome. Who he looks nothing like. <laughs> I don't see the resemblance. I really don't understand why they selected this name. Um so yeah, and then I moved when I moved back uh, uh you know, seventh grade is is full on middle school and then eighth grade. And yeah. I, I just I lumped ninth grade in there even though that was um high school. It was still rough though, ninth grade. Yeah. My situation, middle school, uh, not to interrupt the flow, I hope I'm not. No, you're fine. Um, but yeah, just <laughs> because it's astounding to me. I'm like, is every point going to be the same? <laughs> Are we going to have had suicidal impulses for the same reason on the same day at the same minute? I don't know. But, yeah, yeah, we'll see when we get there. I'm trying to remember what my first, I mean, I started having ideations. Yeah. It's a scary thing to ask to put you in that headspace, and I and I thank you for your bravery. But I'm I'm willing to do it too because I have wanted to kill myself, and I'm and I hope to in this hour to explain why or like get to that point. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. Um, <laughs> All right, if that, you blocked it out, that's valid. Well, that first time, <laughs> sure, <laughs> sure. Like, uh, when it when it first uh, fully came to a head of, gosh, what was it? it was high school? So yeah. it was. I mean, when I when I. And let's try I, not for this to veer off into a discussion of the movie Annihilation because it easily could, I realized. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, anyway, seventh grade, uh, I went from like, ex- did a like being smart and that was my whole identity mm-hmm. to uh, like I was be- I was smart in a school where that was not, it was the reverse of cool mm-hmm. and getting spit on, beaten up, 
threatened to get killed via email and shit like people trying to harass me into killing myself on social media and oh, shit. wow it was rough yeah my parents yanked me out of there but it was, i didn't it get was that really no okay. i got i got dropped into a private school um at seventh grade see i went was... from private to public don't do it kids if you can afford it yeah i did the opposite <laughs> i went from public to private which and it was worse i don't think it was worse because i didn't get i didn't get external abuse okay. the way that you described it okay. i mean i got teased for being heavy I got classic bullshit, man. (laughs) I got teased for being fat. Um, I saw a kid get stabbed. Did not see that. Told my parents that, and that was where they're like, all right, we'll move and put you in a different school. (laughs) Jesus. Yeah, no, that's way different. Yeah. Um, No, it was just the standard teasing and stuff like that, but I just... It was so... It was hard to get dropped into a a situation where it's already like it's it's hard for me to talk to people in a way that doesn't make me seem like an alien Mm -hmm. um man this is i don't i didn't really i didn't think of the the trying to access this memory would be this this difficult yeah man i'm really searching i get it and don't worry about it because it's Um, like that's the point of the show i i will say that it was it was less of the it was less of actual external factors, even though I did get bullied a little bit, not mm. terribly, but you know, just a standard getting called names for being fat. Um, but it, most of it was like perceived like I was by like, yourself. Yeah, yeah. I was like, nobody fucking likes me. Like, mm-hmm. look at that. Like, why would anybody waste their time on me? And then it became, I, I just started being more and more uh, internalized. Like I was, or I already, was writing like creatively. Like I started that in fourth grade mm-hmm. um, and decided that I wanted to be a writer. And the reason that I wanted to be a writer is yeah, I, I enjoyed it, but it was a thing that I could do alone and I never had to go out and be anywhere. Like I didn't have to go to an office and you were and, conscious and be of around that at people. The time? Yeah. Like you thought that that's why I wanted nice. that. Yeah, yeah. I did. Cause I didn't have to go be social. Man, I, be I had alone. the same reasons, but I wanted to be a comic artist that I couldn't draw. Okay. Like I can draw like kind of like comic strip cartoony. Right, right, right. I had a godfather who's an incredible painter, plug time, <laughs> William Glenn He's great. Um, but he taught me to sketch as a kid. And then I oh, was like, cool. but I do remember consciously thinking he gets to work alone. Yeah. Like eight hours a day in a room by himself playing whatever music he wants and just doing yeah, his thing. That's what <laughs> I wanted. Yeah. That was my ideal. I'd never have to talk to anybody. Mm-hmm. I never have to go out and be anywhere. Um, and it's it, so that was it's weird like i i developed like being funny or whatever as like a social mechanism yeah it was like this yeah. is how i can make That's friends classic yeah <laughs> um and it was never something that i spent a lot of time thinking about like i didn't write funny like i wrote funny sometimes but like mm-hmm. i didn't sit there and write jokes and stuff can i ask did it dealing with people socially did it manifest as a depression or more anxiety anxiety okay and then depression Just to compare notes because i still yeah, yeah, i yeah. still do this too uh it, it starts with anxiety and then it becomes right. depression afterward when you're evaluating About the interaction why can't i deal with a simple situation yeah yeah and then you do you have 
Sorry, sorry to interrupt. That. No, it's all right. Because I do. Yeah, yeah. Full. Like I'm only asking these things because I do or mm-hmm. did. Actually, I feel like in the last two to three years, I've conquered this aspect. But before then, up until the age of thirty, easily, mm-hmm. I had intense anxiety bordering on panic attack. Dealing with anyone ever, talking to anyone ever, yeah. close friends exempted, but like a transaction at a store mm-hmm. is also very high anxiety. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Any, I, I, I'm glad that you have overcome this because I have not. <laughs> Every interaction I have, even with close friends, mm. I will walk away evaluating it. Yeah. And like trying to like score how I did. And it's like, oh, like every interaction for me is a constant tug of war be- uh, between how that person feels about me. <laughs> um, so I'll, I'll go into a, an interaction and it can be two minutes long or three hours yeah. long. And then I'll come away from it being like, oh, crap, like I lost like I lost like 50 points or something. I don't literally think of it in a point scale, but I sure, imagine yeah. it in my mind is like this visual. Cory Doctorow style. <laughs> sure. As being like, oh, that person just really thinks I'm like weird and uh, whatever. Like I, I have gone down in that person's sure. esteem. Um, well for the ride home, yeah. I appreciate you being here and I'm so happy that you did this. <laughs> You're doing great, buddy. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to, man. Have we answered how does depression feel to you? No. Um, <laughs> like wow, viscerally. What, how does it feel to me? Um, like this is all like a preface to the answering that question. Yeah. Um, gosh, how does it feel? Um, it's hard to say for me because it's, I feel like it's been my baseline for such a long Mm. time that I think the more, I think I'd be able to describe more what it feels like to not be depressed. Well, go for it. Okay. What Um, is it like to not be depressed? (laughs) I don't, um, like in, in moments when I'm like truly free from it, I guess, like I can, I can feel good about things. It's, it's hard to explain. Um, but that's almost one of the dictionary definitions, like inability to derive joy from things. So therefore you're like, when you're happy, yeah, you can like, derive joy from things yeah, for well, brief well, moments. For brief yeah. moments. And I, I won't hear any of the, and I won't hear any voices in my head when I do that. Not like literal voices. Like I don't have schizophrenia. Okay. Cause I was going to ask, but, which is fair enough. Schizophrenia, sure. many people in my family have schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. It's a big worry for me growing up. Mm-hmm. No, I don't have like actual auditory hallucinations. Like I'm, sure. I'm aware at all times. Right, like right, it's right. my internal monologue. So your comedic instinct is using the phrase voices. Voices in my head. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it's, uh, like I won't hear, there's always that, uh, voice. Yeah, totally. No, no, no. Now we mean the figurative voice. Right. It's it's an internal monologue, but that, that's always there being like trying to pull me back and be like, no, no, you're, you're getting too far out there. Like you're gonna, you're gonna get hurt if you get that far out there and, and let yourself allow yourself to be exposed this much. Like you have to come back down to where it's comfortable like Mm -hmm. it feels uncomfortable to be away from always feeling bad about everything it's just it about everything not just yourself 
like uh, cynicism, overall cynicism? No, it's not cynicism. Okay. I, I've okay. gotten better about being cynical. Well, that's good to clarify then. Yeah. it's How it's, does it differentiate from being cynical about like, or like pessimistic? It's more because it's not, I don't project it onto anything else. Mm, like I'm I not, see. I'm not everything sucks. I'm, I suck. And really? <laughs> and everything. Okay. And I am out of place here. So here's an interesting difference. And I think. That's what I love about this show is finding the nuances of like how different people experience it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm maybe I'm, ooh, for lack of a better term, more like figuratively schizophrenic than you. But everything with me seems to have resolved to a place where it's a light switch. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I have good days where I feel that like I can conquer the world. Yeah. Maybe I'm on the spectrum for bipolarism. I don't know. You might and have, I have, have been tested. <laughs> no, never. And I have days where I feel like I cannot do anything right. And I'm a piece of shit and that's, and I should probably just do everyone a favor and get out of yeah. here. And everyone hates me, blah, blah, blah. And then you were also just, sorry, I was distracted by you drinking your diet Pepsi, which is like my fault, not yours. <laughs> sure. But what, what was the topic right before that? You were talking about how it's like a light switch for you. Oh yeah, and cynicism versus and pessimism. Exactly. You were, for, I'm more pessimism. Well, you were saying you don't project it onto other things. You project it mostly on yourself. Yeah. And I project it on myself and equally upon everything, which is why I do eventually want to do an episode with my girlfriend Jen about living with someone with depression, or at least living with me, I guess, mm-hmm. because my thing is like I'm not always depressed. I have good days and bad days, and then when I am depressed. It's projected on everything. Oh, like if my girlfriend has the bad fortune of talking to me <laughs> about anything, I'll go like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. Someone should check the mail. I feel like you're asking me to check the mail is super controlling and we should probably just break up. <laughs> like, <laughs> like whatever is in front of me, I think it sucks. Does right. that make sense? Yeah. I understand. And it, that's yeah. highly dangerous and it's hard to be around. Yeah. 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 So like well, over as I've grown, I've had to learn to all I can do is strengthen that voice that goes, you're doing that thing right now. Yeah. yeah. Like the step back voice that's yeah. like to be self-aware. That's the muscle I try to strengthen because then there's shit I can do. There's pills I can take or if that doesn't work, I can go like, you got to go away for a while. <laughs> like you're turning into a werewolf. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Chain me states. up in this room. Yeah. <laughs> No matter what I say, <laughs> yeah. do not give me Prozac. I don't care if I scream or beg. Is this a Tex Avery cartoon? Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Yes. Does yeah. that leave words in your brain to say? I think. Go for it. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it just feels, it's weirdly, it's uh, what's dangerous about it is it feels comforting to me because I've had it for so long. Like I yeah. feel, I feel exposed. I feel vulnerable when I'm not depressed. Mm-hmm. Strangely, um, I, and I do, I do go back. I like, I'll have days when I'm like, I can really, I have, I have the manic energy definitely Mm -hmm. where it's like, I can do a hundred things today and I'll get them all done. And then there's other days where it's like, I can't do anything. I can't move and and there's no desire to do anything. Yeah. And motivational. Like Marino comes, why don't you watch something or why don't you play a game or something? It's like, I, literally don't feel like anything like i don't want to do anything yep yeah yeah. i want to sit here in the dark You're like because i would drive the same amount of joy from watching that movie as i would precisely from doing yeah nothing. i'm just I, <laughs> it doesn't matter what's in front of me right <laughs> yeah. now um 
yeah, it's weird. It's like an armor that's it's like an armor that's killing me. Ooh. Like episode title. Yeah. But it's it was a way to guard me from from feeling a lot of a lot of things. Um when I was a kid and then in in, in high school. Um because there was a lot there was some there was some family stuff, not super dramatic, but I mean we had you know, uh, we had to, my parents get divorced when I was younger. Um, and then we had new step parents and my, my dad out, dad out. Yeah. My mom and my brother had a lot of problems during that time. Like mm, he was really, okay. he was really, and they still haven't really totally healed. So my mom was kind of, I don't know. We're half an hour in. We've discovered the first difference in our lives at all. <laughs> like this is it. Nope. My brother and my mom are fine. <laughs> oh well, my my mom went through. She's she's great now, but she went through a period where she was pretty uh, abusive to my brother. Mm. Um, Sorry to hear that. Yeah, uh, and and he still has. But not to you. No, because okay, I, so like I stayed. I stayed relationship my, between them. Okay. Yeah, John really was angry about the. Uh, divorce and i just i was so young that i just accepted it stayed uh, out of the way yeah like yeah. I, I think i was six like i was really like i was the only reason i cried when my parents told us they were getting a divorce mm-hmm. was because i saw my brother crying and i was like oh that's how i react like i was so young that it was just like all right like we were my brother and i were pleased because they had been fighting so much in an escalating way that it seemed like it couldn't go on i got you and how, how old were you I was seven and my brother was oh. four. Oh, interesting. So pretty young. Yeah. I didn't, I don't remember that my parents ever fighting. Gotcha. So okay. they hit it pretty well from me anyway. Did you enjoy your parents being divorced or did you view that? as I like was a so young that I don't, mixed? I don't really remember what it was like. It's to just have normal. Together. Yeah. I also thought it was normal and kind of cool. Like I enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then my dad got remarried as well and we had a lot of, issues with my stepmother um Mm. and i mean it's i like recently uh within the last five or seven years it was maybe about 10 years ago Mm -hmm. but i went through like a three-year period where i didn't speak to my dad oh okay um at all yeah like he he almost was not invited to my wedding oh boy um so that's kind of I mean, that's related to, to, to my depression where it's just like, I stop having time or I just, I can cut people out kind of scarily easily. I can um, compartmentalize super easily and people yeah. find, take issue with it. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it'll be like, like rem- I'm, I'm to the removing a person from my life where it's mm. just like, you know, that's, yeah. I don't have the time for someone who just makes, who's trying to make me feel bad. Like, I just imagine you flipping me off, walking away, and I never see you again. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, sure. this is all a lead up to that. <laughs> no. <laughs> Speaking um, of which. Yeah. So it's just, it's weird. It's like what depression feels like for me is this entity that's like looking out for me. It's like, no, no, you keep all that stuff away because it's only going to make you feel bad. And then when we're alone, it's like, you're a big piece of shit. You know that, right? Yeah, like, dude. It just, yeah. It's, it's. Have you ever said that to yourself in the mirror? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm finding out that's common because I've com- done that I'll a do, lot many, many, this many is, times. This is a frightening thing that I do. 
when I'm when I think of uh, something embarrassing or something shameful about myself, mm-hmm. I ref- I cannot stop myself from speaking aloud. Um, and I'll, it'll be something like, oh, you're a big piece of shit or something like that. Yeah. And I will always, always mime either shooting myself in the head or like, yeah, I can't stop myself from doing it. Right. Um, so like I, and I was conscious of doing it like last week mm-hmm. when I was in the front room. I was like, I, I just had a thought that I've never had before uh-huh. and was like, what if Marina saw me doing this? Like it would be upsetting. It would be very upsetting. It's like I need to figure out how to not do that. But it's so it's such a reflex for me. Um, but yeah, it's like it's like um it's like the black suit from Spider Man almost. Okay, it's like (laughs) here we go. It's not not, all right. Here we go. It's not being it's not being angry, but it's like this thing. Welcome to Hypecast with your guest Michael Swain. (laughs) Seriously, it's uh, it's this feeling that I've relied on to protect me from honestly really even feeling anything. Well, you're <laughs> referencing a symbiote, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, but so at the symbiosis. same time, it's, it's poisoning. It's actively right, poisoning. Right. Me. Um, so yeah, that's the best way I can describe it. Well, that resonates deeply. Yeah. Uh, if I've often thought if there's like a hidden camera, do you know the, uh, the Kendrick Lamar song, I think it's just the letter U. Looking in the mirror, where he's, Mm-mm. oh man, it's it's it hits so hard with me. It's uh, to to it. off "Pimp a Butterfly," and it's a Kendrick song where he's just talking to himself and saying like, "Loving you is complicated," is the chorus. But then the verse is like, "You're an irredeemable piece of shit," and he's talking to himself in the mirror. Yep. And it's becoming huge that I was like, I didn't know everyone did that, but I definitely do that. Yeah. And if there were a hidden camera and then one of like someone close to me saw it, I'd be like, man, I look so fucking like goofy and stupid. I'm sorry. Like, this is really embarrassing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it feels very serious in the moment. Yeah. Um, so what I want to jump to, cause we're about, we're just over halfway through. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to jump to the topic at hand, which it, I am. Yeah. Su- I'm also finding it surprisingly difficult, which is weird. Cause I've done like 12 episodes of this mm-hmm. and everything has felt, really easy but i think the idea of actually contemplating self-destruction is almost taboo uh it's uh just not something you talk about and i think that's why it's important to talk about but as far as my experience is concerned i am gonna go first if that's okay sure hopes of making you more comfortable (laughs) um I mean, I feel like I have to. It's my show, so like sure. I no, better yeah, put sure. my money where my mouth is. Um, and, and and full disclosure, I'm contemplating reading my suicide note as a as part of the monologue opening this episode. Oh, I've never written one. Never written a note, right? Okay, yeah. Well, for me, I just want to describe, I guess, and this is what I'm actually really curious about and trying to investigate. Um, because uh, if, when someone is gracious and like brave enough to be willing to go to the place of like, how did I feel when I was actually contemplating or uh, attempting suicide? That's valuable information, I think, for everyone who's been in that place. And for me, it's, I think there's a difference between suicidal like thoughts, ideation, tendencies, mm-hmm. attempts, and then even like success. I still differentiate, and I don't know. Because I've had friends who have successfully killed themselves, successfully, so to speak, quote unquote. And I have had 
friends who attempted suicide and I believe it was genuine, but that's, it's still quite a gray area. Uh, being dead is such a final thing. And then if you survive, it's such a gray area. Um, but I think something we've never touched on in this show is I've described very much self-loathing, depression, things like that. Mm -hmm. But there's, when I have actually gotten to the point of contemplating my own destruction, or as I've described it most often to people close to me, I don't think I'm a high risk for suicide because I don't, because I'm a coward. Like <laughs> I fear uh, jumping into the unknown so much that it would be tough. And then I, I, I flatter myself that maybe part of it is I don't want to spread a ripple of grief out to people who did lo- love me or whatever or would miss me. But it's, it's a combination of self-loathing, which obviously paves the way because mm-hmm. you have to believe like you're valueless or that, if you're an empathetic person, you have to believe other people will be better off in the long run with my absence. But for me, there's like this feeling of, uh, I just don't want to see the rest of the movie. Like if life is a movie, this movie sucks and I would walk out of it. Yeah. And this intense frustration that almost becomes unbearable that like, why do people love me? Why do I have to be attached to anyone? Why am I not allowed to quit? I would like to quit without have being responsible for like hurting people's feelings and shit. Yeah. Can I just quit? This sucks. I just don't like this. I get that. (laughs) I get that feeling a lot where it's like, I wish when when I'm really low, like I'm like, I wish I wasn't married. I wish I didn't like, I wish I could just not have ties to anyone. So I could just self-destruct in peace. Yeah. Or the never having existed button. Mm-hmm. versus suicide where you're like there's all these compounding factors but i'm like the point is i wish i were never born like for sure you know um and for me it feels a lot like a roller coaster shaking apart because depression is something that i wrestle with a lot and sort of has become like an old friend or so to speak mm-hmm. yeah. i don't try to characterize it that way because i don't know if that's healthy but i don't know that it's, it's not healthy. i don't know it's how it gets you right <laughs> but at the same point depression often makes me have this detachment and a motivation mm-hmm. where i can sit in it for a long time and it's it doesn't threaten my life because i wouldn't even have the motivation to kill myself right <laughs> um, it's more of the anxiety. It's when the anxiety gets out of control. It feels like a machine I'm in shaking apart and like, I don't know how I could bear this for another second mm-hmm. is basically what it gets to. And I will say the, well, the close, I, I don't know. I don't want this to sound like comparing notes in the wrong way. It's always a it's a weird line between like vulnerability and but mm-hmm. I think I'm doing this show for the right reasons. <laughs> but, um, uh, <laughs> as I said, I've written suicide notes. I've uh, cut myself and like fashioned suicide implements or or situations, mm-hmm. and then sat there and then not done it. Mm. That's basically my experience. But uh, but it is it's a kind of. I think a lot of people, or at least in movies and shows, suicide seems to come from the part of depression where you're so detached that you're just like, then he walks off stage and he shoots himself with Chekhov's gun. (laughs) Whereas, and I don't know if I want to hear if your experience was different, but for me it was, no, it's like a racing hundred mile an hour panic. Like you have to jump off the roller coaster because it's going too fast. For for me, it's always been... 
um, like in a, in a, in a, it's, it's opposite of detached. It's very impassioned for me. Yes. It's when you're feeling everything. Yeah. And I think what it is, is part for me anyways, I compartmentalize everything. I don't feel anything usually. Um, so that when it does come through, mm-hmm. it's too much. Um, yeah. And it's just, I get the, the anxiety sometimes where it's so bad. It's just, I have this feeling that of doom and I can't place it and I know it's irrational, but it's just mm-hmm. like a, a, that machine shaking apart. I definitely feel that I've not been in any time that I've attempted, that hasn't been the, the mood that I'm in, but I have experienced that mood many, many times where it's just like, I feel like this whole thing is going to fly apart. Like, how could I continue to exist? Yeah. You yeah. feel like you're going to dissolve. Yeah. Yeah. Um, gosh. Yeah. For me, it's been, I've never written a note. Um, has it been like a calm thing? Cause they, that's why I always feel it's so depression gets you so many different ways. Mm-hmm. When I contemplate suicide and then don't do it, I also think I'm a, like a weird drama queen coward you know what i mean like i think that's did you just do that for fucking attention you piece of shit well that's <laughs> that's when i started that's when i started really getting into self-harm mm-hmm. um like cutting and hitting myself and strangling myself um because it's like i did start to have that thought yeah. where it's like are you manufacturing this this feeling like are you just thinking you're depressed so i like i would start to hurt myself just so it could be like no this is I'm, i was validating myself to myself <laughs> like where it was like this is you're really experiencing this and what's crazy is you could never know like philosophers could argue infinitely about what's the difference between <laughs> right where it's like no he's not crazy he's right just pretending to be crazy are you pretending what's to be depressed <laughs> are you <laughs> depressed right yeah well, I feel depressed in every way, right? But that feeling is psychosomatic. Well, what does that mean at this point? Yeah, yeah I don't. You hit yourself in the head. Where do you hit yourself? Everywhere. Oh, really? I punch myself in the face, in the head a lot. Um, in Man, the stomach. I exclusively hit myself in the head, ninety-nine percent of the time. I uh, and it escalated. Not it didn't change location. It escalated with like ob it becoming objects. Objects. And shit. Yeah. And. I just am, I wonder something I could never know because I was in a car accident when I was nine. I got hit in the head mm-hmm. and that formed a, like everyone at school knew I got hit in the head and it was kind of my identity. And I'm like, is that why I'm hitting myself in the head? I don't know I what don't that know. means. But I whatever. Mean, I, I, my head stapled back together from a car accident, but I was wow. already fucked before that. <laughs> so I don't know if it's the head or not. I had experienced panic attacks before, but deep depression was after. Hmm. However, I have no way of confirming or denying. Right, like, yeah. I don't know what the, you know, because depression does run in my family also. What were we talking about? Strangling ourselves and oh, shit. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. No, I've, but, um, I've, uh, yeah, I've done the, the, the belt thing. Did you destroy shit you were proud of? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that sucks. I threw away. Um, I miss my drawing portfolios from when I was thought I'd be a comic artist. I ruined them all. I have a, I had a box of uh, Christmas ornaments from my Oma, my grandmother who has, who has passed. Um, mm-hmm. and I threw them all away. Mm. The stuff like she had made and, and, and whatnot. Um, this, that was my, that was during my first real suicide attempt was right. I, I threw all that stuff away. Um, I did extensive research on the internet 
to figure out how much of a particular thing I should, I needed to take before it would kill me. Mm-hmm. And I took it. Yeah. And it didn't work. <laughs> sure. Yeah. It just didn't work. Substances like that's, affect that's, different people different ways. This is the, uh, the, the same the, thing happened to Kurt Vonnegut. Oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> that's the, uh, that's the narrative of, yeah, I've probably four real attempts. Okay. And I think three of them just didn't work. That implies that there are non-real attempts. And what what does that mean And when you it say that? It implies that it's non-real. Um, well, I've never had a gun. Okay. Um, but I've tried hanging myself. Right. Um, you know, and it you, just didn't work? It just didn't. Like, I mean, I, I passed out. Yeah. But I guess I just didn't get the angle right. Okay. Well, well congratulations. Well, yeah, it's you know you did tie a belt to a door. Woke up. Sit down. Yeah. I to someone up. finding you or no, you're no, alone. nobody found me. <laughs> you just woke up and you're like, up. that didn't work. I was like, well, shit. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a Seinfeld bit where he talks about that where it's like, well, yeah. Why? Why do you stop? Like people who attempt suicide and then just never again. It's like, well, why? Why did you stop? Because one more thing you stink at. My brain jumped there, <laughs> and I would argue that the reason is because. But, tell me if I'm wrong, or in your case, uh, if it if you happen to fail at hanging yourself and you wake up, perhaps some of the like chemical profile that was in your brain has went down had time or, to yeah, do, it yeah. Had time to balance out like I, yeah and that's like the message i want to thunder through to people who might be currently considering them killing themselves is that i don't philosophically i'm not against every case of deciding to kill yourself i'm honestly not but <laughs> um in most cases i think people listening to this especially considering our demographics and shit yeah. will be facing what we faced which is acute moments of panic where you think you can't handle this so yeah. you need to kill yourself and for better or worse, I don't know what it means, but two hours later, you might not want to kill yourself. So yeah, I, I, think about that while you're thinking about killing yourself. Yeah, please do. Um, yeah. I was instantly, you know, because when you when you take a bunch of pills or whatever mm-hmm. to try to kill yourself, that doesn't it doesn't happen immediately. So after I did that, I was immediately sorry, mm-hmm. but not. But then, like, I didn't induce the, vomiting or no, go to the hospital. I didn't hospital. go to the hospital. Right. I didn't induce vomiting. I just accepted my decision, but I was immediately very, very upset and very. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I regretted it the instant I did it. Interesting. Um, and luckily, it didn't work. Um, but yeah, and I mean, I've been. I I can definitely echo what you said that for me it's all it always like the depression is constant but the suicidal ideation leading into the actual attempt it's always a moment Mm -hmm. and the moment passes yeah um and i mean it's an ongoing battle with me like i was um oh was it last year might have been 20, I think it was 2016. It was while we were all still at Cracked that um, I was... Uh, we'll bleep that. Sure. <laughs> so we were all still working together. Um, no, I just don't like contractions in the podcast. We'll bleep we're. Or oh. replace it with we are. It's more formal. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was, uh, I, I was um, committed to the hospital. 
here in, in Los Angeles for several days. Oh, okay. Um, I feel bad that I wasn't close enough to you to know that. Sorry. It's, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Um, yeah. And that was pretty recent and it was because I was trying to kill myself. Yeah. Marina called an ambulance and the cops came instead. <laughs> it was, it was a pretty brutal, it was a pretty brutal experience. Like I got handcuffed to a wheelchair and they just left me sitting in, in the hospital for like three hours before anyone came to check on me. And then yeah. they moved me to a bed to which I was also handcuffed. Um, and then put in the psych ward for several days. And that's the most miserable place I've ever been. Not helpful. Not at all. Do you, do you therapy? Yeah. Sometimes. Oh, just sometimes. Okay. Sometimes. Man, I love therapy. Yeah. <laughs> Got to keep it up. I need to, yeah, I need to, I have a problem with being honest with my therapists. Yeah. I yeah, feel that. It's really strange. Sure. It's really strange. Like I go in there wanting to, mm-hmm. I'll be like, I'm going to tell them all these different problems. Cause they're having. a stranger and that's their job and is I always to pull, hear whatever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I always pull back. Interesting. I think that's probably resonating with a lot of listeners too. Yeah. I wish I knew why I did that. <laughs> I think it's shame and like embarrassment. And also it comes from that social transaction mentality where it's like, mm-hmm. I want everybody to like me. And it's like, no, the, this person's job is literally not dependent on whether or not they like you. Yeah. Like, but you know, there's a caveman background to that. Like obviously survival is totally based on the social order mm-hmm. and like you were saying at the beginning of the podcast, losing or gaining 50 points with someone. Yeah. I think everyone has a different amount of development of this gland, but there's some like intangible gland that tells you like, it's important if X amount of people believe in me, then I will like rise to the top because sure. reality is just based, at least human societal reality is just based on whatever everyone agrees to. Mm-hmm. Um, if everyone agrees Napoleon should be the thing, then he's the thing or whatever. Yeah. Um, so it's very important and I don't know how to get around it cause it objectively is very important that everyone like you <laughs> and yet I shouldn't it, like, it's irresponsible to me to say that or like, you're not supposed to feel that way, I guess Yeah, is the conventional wisdom. Um, but I do feel like, I mean, my girlfriend is a social worker and I would say if two things characterize her clients who are people who are in very dire situations, young people, it's usually three things. The first and foremost being they were just fucked from the outside because of the card they were dealt. And I don't mm-hmm. want to minimize that. Yeah. But because of those circumstances, it's cultivated lack of impulse control. Cause you feel like you got to get it while you can because yeah. the future has not been reliable to you. And then also the most recent suicidal impulse I have, I have had was very different than an attempt or like, uh, the idea of, I, I've been really sick lately and it could be like, I need my gallbladder out. It could be, um, IBS. It could be colitis, Mm -hmm. something like that. Sure. Um, and we're looking into it, but as a result, I've been just throwing up constantly and like, like horrible, Mm. painful experiences. And I was actually throwing up recently, weeping, praying to the God that I don't believe exists. To please let me choke on my vomit this time and die. Like, I was legitimately like, this needs to be done now. (laughs) Yeah. But again, just an acute moment, and then you're out. Mm -hmm. I think that's important to point point out repeatedly. Yeah. 
I feel like you can bear, most people can bear the existential burden <laughs> the, the, of depression um, for most of the time. Yeah. Because there's always, you want to hang on to like a tiny shred of hope. So there's always like a right. little bit of hope or it's like, well, maybe things will get better. Like, mm-hmm. And they might, you know, but I mean, if, if I don't know. <laughs> it's, well, there's also a deep undercurrent of doubt inherent in depression so it really much I, I it just really resonates with me the idea that because i've never done pills and i can't the idea that you would take pills and then immediately regret it because there's like a time period whenever oh, oh, i've seriously oh, I, 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 i'm sorry i thought you, you meant, meant like medication mood. oh oh why can't you i don't react well to them ssris okay. and ssnis i think ni is the new one i've i've, I've thinking been of switching i've been put on several different kinds and i've Okay. I can't take, I can't take them. Like okay. One, uh, weird side effects and shit. W- w- a lot of them like give me like psychotic episodes. Oh shit. Yeah. Where I get I've like crazy paranoid and like I do start having like audio and, and visual hallucinations. And, oh like, wow. I didn't have that, but I had kind of body hallucinations. Uh, I switched to some, I forget which one. Well, Butrin gave me terrible nightmares. But well, Butrin I, fucked me up too. Yeah. I switched. <laughs> yeah. Awesome nightmares that I want to adapt into screenplays, but tear every night like five horrible nightmares. And then I switch to another one. <laughs> Just like crazy intense. Yeah. Nightmares. Another one I forget the name of, but Jen and I went to like a play that night. Mm. And I actually like stood up and screamed and made a scene and like halted the play because I thought I was having a heart attack, which I was not. I don't mm. know. I was just like, yeah, panicking. Yeah, it's, to that you become degree. convinced of something that's happening to Right. You. She had to drag me out of there. Yeah. There, yeah, I, I can't. And that's the reason. And I it was in an old church, and for some reason, I said I don't want to die in a church, which is funny because it's like where most people <laughs> would want to die. Not me, man. I'm a, a church is not home base to me. It doesn't no. feel comfortable. <laughs> I want to die in a beanbag chair. I want to die in a field or in a beanbag chair, surrounded <laughs> by bean, video game consoles. Yeah, in a beanbag chair in a field, yeah, surrounded by. No, yeah, it's it's also the, it, I can't. I can't take a lot of drugs, period. Okay. Like, I can't... Uh, like, even the fun ones. Mm. They all fuck with my head in weirdly similar ways that are not pleasant. True. Psychedelics, too? Yeah. That sucks. Yeah, it's really it's really lame. They're, they're the only drug that I'm like... They have, like, an insight aspect to them. Everything else is just relaxes And they can be used some. to treat certain dis- disorders. That's true. Like PTSD, PTSD like that. right, MDMA. But it's, yeah, I hear, like, you know, everybody's like, man, those sound like fun. I dare not. Yeah. <laughs> it was a calculated risk the first time I took acid because my cousin, who is schizophrenic, uh, his experience of it was he took acid at, like, 18, 19, and then described it as well that was it i just never came down from the acid mm. the hallucinations that's terrifying forever for the rest of my life and that fucking sucks yeah and yet i took acid <laughs> because my friends were all taking acid and it seemed like the thing to do yeah you're like, let you know that what? sink in i'm gonna throw those dice i rolled those dice <laughs> and i'm glad it worked out but that's still crazy yeah <laughs> that i did it i'm sorry i interrupted you with that no, no, no. We're all over the place. It's well, a sprawling topic. Yeah. You were talking about you've never you've never done drugs, but you were talking about taking pills. I've never done drugs. 
Yeah, you, you said yeah. that could that doesn't sound like no, me. No, you said I've never done pills. I think is what you said. Oh, right, right, right. And well, I did want to ask before the podcast wraps up. Certainly, um, do you have the thing where one of the hardest things to me is so many people that I admire who seem like they've figured it out killed themselves. Yeah, like who am I to think I'm smarter than Kurt Vonnegut, my favorite author, who attempted to kill himself and wrote in one of his last books that he estimates that 13% of people have lives worth living and 87% should have killed themselves. Like, who am I to question him, right? Well, they're all... I mean, we're all broken people in some way. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think... Except Soren Bowie. Except for fucking Soren. See previous episode. Yeah. All about how he's fine. Just... And fuck that guy. Just skateboarding through life. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing fucking touches that guy. Um, No, I... I, I, And all... This is, uh, you know, it's a recurring observation in in Mm -hmm. so many different people who... uh, talk about depression and the arts and stuff, but like creative people are often broken in the same way. Um, I think all of us miserable bastards. (laughs) Um, So I think it's, if you're in the top 5% of being able to make jokes, there's like a reason and it's usually bad. It's like you had to, to survive. Yeah. (laughs) It's always, yeah. Just super dark. Um, So I don't think you can, Like Kurt Vonnegut, I've not read, but like any, Mm-mm. not a word, not a word. All right, moving on. But like, yeah, you can be really, really a really, really great author, but still be like, like I don't, I don't agree with that. Like I don't think he's emo. He was definitely not emotionally healthy. So right. You have to understand that not everyone is emotionally healthy, and it's like just because this person put out this output that I think is incredible and then killed themselves, it doesn't mean that you mm-hmm. also have to do that to make edit your output worth anything. Yeah. So it's, that's a false equivalence. Like, Although I do think my mom made a good point recently is that I hope they're not still, cause I was taught the bell jar in high school. Were you uh, Sylvia Plath, the bell jar? Okay. Well, it's a book by an author who killed herself. Killed herself yeah. Who's in, who happens to be a fabulous writer and writes very evocatively mm-hmm. for many pages about all the reasons you should kill yourself. <laughs> and they give it to like 15 year old kids. Oof. Why do they teach that? They like, shouldn't. They're like, well, it's so well written. We have to teach it. And you're like, no, you hold this, off on that. Maybe not. <laughs> yeah. Or at least if you're going to teach it, like talk about it. Right. Like you have to put it in the correct context. We talked a little about it, man, but we had to move. We were onto a separate piece in Ishii Last of His Tribe. (laughs) (laughs) Either ring a bell? (laughs) No? Separate piece sucks ass. (laughs) No, I didn't read any of that stuff. Okay. What were your high school books? Man, they were super basic. Like Les Miserables. um, Didn't read it. No, that's longer than what... We read Ender's Game. We didn't read Ender's Game. I I read Ender's Game... In 2008, in a day to impress this girl that I had first, that okay. I had just started dating, who was, is Marina. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, and did it work? Uh, hey, I, Marina, check how fast I, I can read. I read, I read Ender's Game. Well, because she really liked the book and she gave me the book to read. So I read it in a fucking day because I'm a hopeless loser. Um, now that's cute. And I wanted to impress her. The only book I've ever read in a day was Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Don't know why. <laughs> 
Not sure why I did that. It's also the only day I ever skipped school. Like I ditched, I, a teacher gave oh, it to me wow. in first period and I was so engrossed. I just walked out to the field and sat in the dugout and read it I, all day. It, when my depression got real bad in 11th, 12th grade and mm-hmm. then also my, re- my rebellion got real bad. Like I... Or real good. Real good. Yeah. I got, I, I leaned super hard. Rebellion's into like, good to some degree, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I re- leaned really hard into like punk rock and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just didn't give a shit about anything. I no. walked out of school so many times. Sure. Oh, really? You I did would just walk out. Even though you had great social anxiety. Cause my thing was the same fear that made me scared when I was like ordering a burrito over the mm-hmm. counter made me terrified of being in trouble with any kind I of stopped, authority figure. I, I hit this nihilism mm-hmm. um, that proceed, uh, persists to this day, and I think that's why... Well, it's real. I know now that authority figures have no real power and are just I, I, humans that, who are broken and that, bullshit, yeah, but that, it took me to like 25 to realize that. <laughs> it just it abruptly clicked for me that I was uh-huh. like like a teacher yelling at me. I was like, what the fuck can you do to me? Like it just clicked. You're like in the grand scheme of things, you're a junior high teacher. You've failed in life in some ways. (laughs) It was just, yeah. Oh man, no offense to those out uh, there. Yeah. (laughs) I just stopped caring and I wound up getting a lot of time. Some of that might be good for rough stuff. I don't know. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. You got to save your ammunition. But uh, yeah. And I mean that sort of, I think that that nihilism yeah. Where it's like nothing, the only things that matter are the stuff that you allow to matter mm-hmm. because like you said, everything is based on what people come together and agree yeah. is true. Uh, so it's a construct and it's like, well, none of this is can actually touch me um, unless I decide to allow it to. And that's helped me in some ways and harmed me in a lot of other ways. Like I think it's a reason why um, I've had problems. Um, I've, I've had problems with drinking um, and I think it's less, it's more, I don't know. I mean, it's, 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 you would still call it alcoholism, but it's like, it's, it's, it's less about, I'm, I'm not addicted to alcohol so much as I'm addicted to oblivion, mm. like non-existence. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a way to just. The Tom Cruise movie, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's a way to just just drink and watch the Tom Cruise movie Oblivion. Yeah, Oblivion. No, it's I just I like not existing. Yeah. Um, and so much. Then it's tough that psychedelics don't work for you. I know. That's good for yeah, that. it's it's. Uh, I have another friend who, which is so crazy, because it's just the opposite of everything I understand about acid. Mm-hmm. The first time he took acid, we were all on a beach, and everyone's like, "Oh, I'm starting to feel it. Do you feel it?" And he immediately punched that person in the face. <laughs> Like it made him insane aggressive and people had to hold him down and shit until it wore off. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I totally get what you're saying. Yeah. No. Let just... me ask though, to challenge both of us, because mm-hmm. I have a girlfriend I love very much and plan to marry and do all the shit with mm-hmm. if she'll have do me. Do all the shit. Um, if that's your baseline is the nihilism, why pursue a relationship with Marina? Like if you can't derive joy, right? You see where I'm going with this. Mm-hmm. How did you end up with someone that you wanted to marry? It's a hard question to answer. Because <laughs> I mean, it's... well, I guess I mean when you think back on the love that you share, there were like moments, right? Yeah. So, I guess what I'm getting at is, you do derive joy at certain moments, mm-hmm. or why would you be married to someone? Of course, does that yeah. make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And I know you know that. I just want it to be said for the record. I guess. Yeah, no, definitely. Definitely. And I mean, that's, that's a whole other conversation. Um, <laughs> um, well, I'm going to do an episode with Jennifer about what is it like to live with someone who's depressed and wants to kill themselves when she doesn't. So yeah, yeah, it's tough. I we, we have a, I think I, I don't, I can't speak for her, but I think there's a bit of codependency in our marriage. Sure. Okay. Um, and also Marina's chronically ill. Right. So, um, I don't know, but yeah, I mean, there are lots of, of moments of joy with, with her. You hear that kids? That's really what I wanted to get at. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> that's, it's, um, Man. Does it serve as a counterexample to your nihilism? Do you find it yes. as serving as a bar to those thoughts sometimes? Yeah. 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 Because yeah. um, as, as attractive as non-existence can, can feel, it's like, well, if you're present, then look at all this stuff that you get to have. And it's like, I mean, it's all, it's, 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 my it's it's being depressed is being constantly at war with yourself at least for me where it's like i have my my normal kind of shroud that's you know always you know quote unquote protecting me from from getting hurt just by being sad all the time it's like well if you're sad all the time then you can't have your feelings hurt but then you know there's the other part where it's like well no look at all the objectively good things in your life that make you happy Mm -hmm. or would like to make you happy if you would allow them to. Yeah, exactly. Um, So it's, I'm constantly fighting those two mentalities and I always fall back into depression. Always, always, always. And it's real, it's a real bummer. Well, never say always. (laughs) Well, you gotta, I mean, you gotta keep working. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, that sucks. The drugs don't work for you. No. <laughs> I have found a drug that does raise the baseline of my depression, so to speak, if you know what I mean. Like, the worst it ever gets is not as bad as it used to be. Sure. And that alone is quite a relief. Now I'm working on the anxiety and panic attacks, but... Yeah. Yeah, um, no, it is, it is a bummer that medication has not... I've tried a bunch, too. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I've, I've probably gone through 40. But I've seen this with people in my family... And I guess we'll wrap up with this. And it's not an uplifting... Like, I'm not here to dispel nihilism completely. Oh, no, I'm not. Um, There are people who will... I mean, God, you go to the far end of the spectrum and we're so blessed, obviously. And I know this is a way self-loathing people use to beat themselves up. Like, who am I to be depressed? There are people who are born and their whole life is just torment and being used and then they die at age eight or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Um, So let's not go there, I guess, but... (laughs) But I would also say uh, there are people who grapple with depression their entire lives. I may very well be one of them. I like feel like I'm making progress sometimes. Sometimes I feel like I'm backsliding. Yeah. But I still think, and this is more, I guess this is like the PSA disclaimer, but I really mean it. Every time I've wanted to, uh, I've wished for oblivion or annihilation, uh, I've survived it. And in retrospect, yeah. I have been firmly aware that I'm glad that I didn't give in fully to the impulse or in the case that I actually did somewhat give in to the impulse, it didn't work out and I survived. Yeah. Um, so yeah, hear that. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm the same. I'm the same. And I've been, 
so low that like you can see that there. Oh, there you go. And that's that shot off a scar. Really bad scar on my Shark forearm. Bite. Yeah, that part of my arm doesn't. There's no nerves there anymore. Okay. Like that's how deep that cut was. Um, yeah. And I, I t- rather than go to the hospital, I taped that back together with with uh, packing tape and went to work. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> For some, is it weird that I cringe more at the idea of taking the tape off than the cut itself? It was pretty bad. I'm like, the cut hurts, but you're like dead inside and it makes you feel alive. But then a day later, when you're feeling more normal, mm-hmm. you got to rip tape off an open wound. The next morning was <laughs> yeah, a real yeah, bummer. Yeah, like exactly. I woke up and was like, oh, fuck, I got to go to work. Oh, shit. shit. Like this, my arm is. F- so I, I, I went to the. I went Isn't to the- it so weird that you would contemplate oblivion and then the next morning feel like i can't miss work though yeah (laughs) it's a weird thing humans are weird it's yeah (laughs) it's it's everything i'm describing is contradictory but that's how that's how depression is like your brain's not working correctly uh yeah you want to kill yourself and then life goes on right seems oxymoronic right (laughs) it's like well (laughs) yeah didn't work that time i guess i I gotta go make breakfast (laughs) yeah (laughs) like god damn it i know it's uh it's a real roller coaster ride well, man, you're, I know you've, this is just pablum, but I do mean it. Your work, and I, I think all of our work has meant a lot to a lot of people, and I know everyone who hears this is going to wish you well, oh, uh, if vibes are anything. Everyone wants the best for us. Of course. And that won't help us, but we'll struggle on anyway. Well, I don't know. It does mean a lot for me that you're willing to come here and have this chat. So oh, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I was glad to do it. Yeah. And... uh Maybe I'll have Jenna Marina on to talk about how fucking terrible it is to be around <laughs> yeah, us. What a piece of shit I am to be around. <laughs> yeah, all the time. But yeah, it's rough. They suck. It's, right. it's a real dickhead. Yeah. And on that note, <laughs> everyone's welcome to take the elevator out of the pit. Oh. This has been a Small Beans endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The Beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash smallbeans. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash smallbeans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the Small Beans grow into huge, giant monster beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe, or tell a friend about us. We love you!